Section 7 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 5. Gaul under Roman Dominion, Part 1. From the conquest of Gaul by Caesar, to the establishment there of the Franks under Clovis, she remained for more than five centuries under Roman dominion, first under the pagan, afterwards under the Christian empire. In her primitive state of independence she had struggled for ten years against the best armies and the greatest man of Rome. After five centuries of Roman dominion she opposed no resistance to the invasion of the barbarians, Germans, Goths, Alans, Burgundians, and Franks who destroyed bit by bit the Roman Empire. In this humiliation, and one might say, annihilation of a population so independent, so active, and so valiant at its first appearance in history, is to be seen the characteristic of this long epoch. It is worth while to learn and to understand how it was. Gaul lived, during those five centuries, under very different rules and rulers. They may be summed up under five names, which correspond with governments very unequal in merit and defect, in good and evil wrought for their epoch. First, the Caesars, from Julius to Nero, from 49 B.C. to A.D. 68. Second, the Flavians, from Vespasian to Domitian, from A.D. 69 to 95. Third, the Antonines, from Nerva to Marcus Aurelius, from A.D. 96 to 180. Fourth, the imperial anarchy, or the thirty-nine emperors and the thirty-one tyrants, from Commodus to Corinus and Numerian, from A.D. 180 to 284. Fifth, Diocletian, from A.D. 284 to 305. Through all these governments, and in spite of their different results for their cotemporary subjects, the fact already pointed out as the general and definitive characteristic of that long epoch, to wit, the moral and social decadence of Gaul, as well as of the Roman Empire, never ceased to continue and spread. On quitting conquered Gaul to become master at Rome, Caesar neglected nothing to assure his conquest and make it conducive to the establishment of his empire. He formed, of all the Gallic districts that he had subjugated, a special province which received the name of Gallia Comita, Gaul of the Long Hair, whilst the old province was called Gallia Toyata, Gaul of the Toga. Caesar caused to be enrolled amongst his troops a multitude of Gauls, Belgians, Avernians, and Aquitanians, of whose bravery he had made proof. He even formed, almost entirely of Gauls, a special legion called Alada, Lark, because it bore on the helmets a lark with outspread wings, the symbol of wakefulness. At the same time he gave, in Gallia Comita, to the towns and families that declared for him, all kinds of favors, the rights of Roman citizenship, the title of allies, clients, and friends, even to the extent of the Julian name, a sign of the most powerful Roman patronage. He had, however, in the old Roman province, formidable enemies, especially the town of Marseilles, which declared against him and for Pompey. Caesar had the place besieged by one of his lieutenants, got possession of it, caused to be delivered over to him its vessels and treasure, and left in it a garrison of two legions. He established at Narbonne, Arles, Biterce, Béziers, three colonies of veteran legionnaires devoted to his cause, and near Antipolis, 
Antibes, a maritime colony called Forum Juliae, nowadays Frias, of which he proposed to make a rival to Marseilles, much money was necessary to meet the expenses of such patronage and to satisfy the troops, old and new, of the conqueror of Gaul and Rome. Now there was at Rome an ancient treasure, founded more than four centuries previously by the dictator Camulus, when he had delivered Rome from the Gauls, a treasure reserved for the expenses of Gallic wars, and guarded with religious aspect as sacred money. In the midst of all discords and disorders at Rome, none had touched it. After his return from Gaul, Caesar one day ascended the capital with his soldiers, and finding in the temple of Saturn the door closed of the place where the treasure was deposited, ordered it to be forced. L. Metellus, tribune of the people, made strong opposition, conjuring Caesar not to bring on the Republic the penalty of such sacrilege. "'But the Republic has nothing to fear,' said Caesar. "'I have released it from its oaths by subjugating Gaul. There are no more Gauls.' He caused the door to be forced, and the treasure was abstracted and distributed to the troops, Gallic and Roman. Whatever Caesar may have said, there were still Gauls, for at the same time that he was distributing to such of them as he had turned into his own soldiers, the money reserved for the expense of fighting them, he was imposing upon Gallia Comita, under the name of Stipendium, soldiers' pay, a levy of forty millions of sesterces, a considerable amount for a devastated country which, according to Plutarch, did not contain at that time more than three millions of inhabitants, and almost equal to that of the levies paid by the rest of the Roman provinces. After Caesar, Augustus, left sole master of the Roman world, assumed in Gaul, as elsewhere, the part of pacificator, repairer, conservator, and organizer, whilst taking care, with all his moderation, to remain always the master. He divided the provinces into imperial and senatorial, reserving to himself the entire government of the former, and leaving the latter under the authority of the Senate. Gaul of the long hair, all that Caesar had conquered, was imperial province. Augustus divided it into three provinces, Lagundanesian, Lyonnaise, Belgian, and Aquitanian. He recognized therein sixty nations or distinct cityships, which continued to have themselves the government of their own affairs, according to their traditions and manners, whilst conforming to the general laws of the empire, and abiding under the supervision of imperial governors, charged with maintaining everywhere, in the words of Pliny the Younger, the majesty of Roman peace. Lydunum, Lyon, which had been up to that time of small importance and obscure, became the great town, the favourite city-ship and ordinary abiding-place of the emperors when they visited Gaul. After having held at Narbonne a meeting of representatives from the different Gallic nations, Augustus went several times to Lyon, and even lived there, as it appears, a pretty long while, to superintend, no doubt, from thence, and to get into working order the new government of Gaul. After the departure of Augustus, his adopted son Drusus, who had just fulfilled, in Belgica and on the Rhine, a mission at the same time military and administrative, called together at Lyon delegates from the sixty Gallic cityships to take part, B.C. 12 or 10, in the inauguration of a magnificent monument raised, at the confluence of the Rhone and Sone, in honour of Rome and Augustus as the tutelary deities of Gaul. In the middle of a vast enclosure was placed a huge altar of white marble, on which were engraved the names of the sixty cityships of the long hair. A colossal statue of the Gauls and sixty statues of the Gallic cityships occupied the enclosure. 
Two columns of granite, twenty-five feet high, stood close by the altar, and were surmounted by two colossal victories, in white marble, ten feet high. Solemn festivals, gymnastic games, and oratorical and literary exercitations accompanied the inauguration, and during the ceremony it was announced, amidst popular acclamation, that a son had just been born to Drusus at Lyon itself, in the palace of the emperor, where the child's mother, Antonia, daughter of Mark Antony and Octavia, sister of Augustus, had been staying for some months. This child was one day to be the emperor Claudius. The administrative energy of Augustus was not confined to the erection of monuments and to festivals. He applied himself to the development in Gaul of the material elements of civilization and social order. His most intimate and able adviser, Agrippa, being settled at Lyon as governor of the Gauls, caused to be opened four great roads, starting from a milestone placed in the middle of the Lyonnaise Forum, and going one centrewards to Saint and the ocean, another southwards to Narbonne and the Pyrenees, the third northwestwards and toward the channel by Amiens and Boulogne, and the fourth northwestwards and towards the Rhine. Agrippa founded several colonies, amongst others Colonia, which bore his name, and he admitted to Gallic territory bands of Germans who asked for an establishment there. Thanks to public security, Romans became proprietors in the Gallic provinces, and introduced them to Italian cultivation. The Gallic chieftains, on their side, began to cultivate lands which had become their personal property. Towns were built or grew apace, and became encircled by ramparts, under protection of which the populations came and placed themselves. The most learned and attentive observer of nature in Roman society, Pliny the Elder, attests that under Augustus, Gallic agriculture and industry made vast progress. But side by side with this work, in the cause of civilization and organization, Augustus and his Roman agents were pursuing a work of quite a contrary tendency. They labored to extirpate from Gaul the spirit of nationality, independence, and freedom. They took every pains to efface everywhere Gallic memories and sentiments. Gallic towns were losing their old and receiving Roman names. Augustonomenium, Augustonamentum, Augusta, and Augustodunum took the place of Gergovia, Novodunum, and Bribat. The national Gallic religion, which was Druidism, was attacked as well as the Gallic fatherland, with the same design and by the same means. At one time Augustus prohibited this worship amongst the Gauls converted to Roman citizens, as being contrary to Roman belief. At another, Roman paganism and Gallic Druidism were fused together in the same temples and at the same altars, as if to fuse them in the same common indifference. Roman and Gallic names become applied to the same religious personification of such and such a fact or such and such an idea. Mars and Camel were equally the god of war, Belen and Apollo the god of light and healing, Diana and Arduena the goddess of the chase. Everywhere, whether it was a question of the territorial fatherland or of religious faith, the old moral machinery of the Gauls was broken up or condemned to rust, and no new moral machinery was allowed to replace it. It was everywhere Roman and imperial authority that was substituted for the free, national action of the Gauls. It is incredible that this hostility on the part of the powers that be towards moral sentiments, and this absence of freedom, should not have gravely compromised the material interest of the Gallic population. Public administration, however extensive its organization and energy, if it be not under the superintendence and restraint of public freedom and morality, soon falls into monstrous abuses, 
which itself is either ignorant of or wittingly suffers. Examples of this evil, inherent in despotism, abound even under the intelligent and watchful sway of Augustus. Here is a case in point. He had appointed as procurator, that is, financial commissioner, in long-haired Gaul, a native who, having been originally a slave and afterwards set free by Julius Caesar, had taken the Roman name of Licinius. This man gave himself up, during his administration, to a course of the most shameless extortion. The taxes were collected monthly, and so taking advantage of the change of name which flattery had caused in the two months of July and August, sacred to Julius Caesar and Augustus respectively, he made his year consist of fourteen months, so that he might squeeze out fourteen contributions instead of twelve. December, said he, is surely, as its name indicates, the tenth month of the year, and he added thereto, in honour of the emperor, two others which he called the eleventh and twelfth. During one of the trips which Augustus made into Gaul, strong complaints were made against Licinius, and his robberies were denounced to the emperor. Augustus dared not support him, and seemed upon the point of deciding to bring him to justice, when Licinius conducted him to the place where was deposited all the treasure he had extorted, and said, "'See, my lord,' said he, "'what I have laid up for thee and for the Roman people, for fear lest the Gauls possessing so much gold should employ it against you both.' For thee I have kept it, and to thee I deliver it. Thierry, Histoire des Galois, 3, page 295, Clarion, Histoire de Lyon, page 198-180. to Augustus accepted the treasure, and Licinius remained unpunished. In the case of financial abuses or other acts, absolute power seldom resists such temptations. We may hear it said, and we may read in the writings of certain modern philosophers and scholars, that the victorious despotism of the Roman Empire was a necessary and salutary step in advance, and that it brought about the unity and enfranchisement of the human race. Believe it not. There is mingled good and evil in all the events and governments of this world, and good often arises side by side with or in the wake of evil, but it is never from the evil that the good comes. Injustice and tyranny have never produced good fruits. Be assured that whenever they have the dominion, whenever the moral rights and personal liberties of men are trodden underfoot by material force, be it barbaric or be it scientific, there can result only prolonged evils and deplorable obstacles to the return of moral right and moral force, which, God be thanked, can never be obliterated from the nature and the history of man. The despotic imperial administration upheld for a long while the Roman Empire, and not without renown, but it corrupted, enervated and impoverished the Roman populations, and left them, after five centuries, as incapable of defending themselves as they were of governing. Tiberius pursued in Gaul, but with less energy and less care for the provincial administration, the pacific and moderate policy of Augustus. He had to extinguish in Belgica, and even in the Leonese province, two insurrections kindled by the sparks that remained of national and druidic spirit. He repressed them effectually, and without any violent display of vengeance. He made a trip to Gaul, took measures, quite insufficient, however, for defending the Rhine frontier from the incessantly repeated incursions of the Germans, and hastened back to Italy to resume the course of suspicion, perfidy, and cruelty, which he pursued against the republican pride and moral dignity remaining amongst a few remnants of the Roman Senate. He was succeeded by Germanicus's unworthy son Caligula. After a few days of hypocrisy on the part of the new emperor, 
and credulous hope on that of the people, they found a madman let loose to take the place of an unfathomable and gloomy tyrant. Caligula was much taken up with Gaul, plundering it, and giving free rein in it to his frenzies, by turns disgusting or ridiculous. In a short and fruitless campaign on the banks of the Rhine, he had made too few prisoners for the pomp of a triumph. He therefore took some Gauls, the tallest he could find, of triumphal size, as he said, put them in German clothes, made them learn some Teutonic words, and sent them away to Rome to await in prison his return and his ovation. Lyon, where he stayed some time, was the scene of his extortions and strangest freaks. He was playing at dice one day with some of his courtiers, and lost. He rose, sent for the tax-list of the province, marked down for death in confiscation some of those who were most highly rated, and said to the company, "'You people, you play for a few drachmas, but as for me, I have just won by a single throw one hundred and fifty millions.' At the rumour of a plot hatched against him in Italy, by some Roman nobles, he sent for and sold, publicly, their furniture, jewels, and slaves. As the sale was a success, he extended it to the old furniture of his own palaces in Italy. "'I wish to fit out the Gauls,' said he. "'It is a mark of friendship I owe to the brave performed the part Roman people.' He himself, at these sales, performed the part of salesman and auctioneer, telling the history of each article to enhance the price. "'This belonged to my father, Germanicus. That comes to me from Agrippa. This vase is Egyptian. It was Antony's. Augustus took it at the Battle of Actium.' The imperial sales were succeeded by literary games, at which the losers had to pay the expenses of the prizes, and celebrate, in verse or prose, the praises of the winners, and if their compositions were pronounced bad, they were bound to wipe them out with a sponge or even with their tongues, unless they preferred to be beaten with a rod or soused in the Rome. One day, when Caligula, in the character of Jupiter, was seated at his tribunal and delivering oracles in the middle of the public thoroughfare, a man of the people remained motionless in front of him, with eyes of astonishment fixed upon him. "'What seem I to thee?' asked the emperor, flattered, no doubt, by this attention of the mob. "'A great monstrosity,' answered the Gaul. And that, at the end of about four years, was the universal cry, and against a mad emperor the only resource of the Roman world was at that time assassination. The captain of Caligula's guards rid Rome and the provinces of him." He did just one sensible and useful thing during the whole of his stay in Gaul. He had a lighthouse constructed to illumine the passage between Gaul and Great Britain. Some traces of it, they say, have been discovered. His successor, Claudius, brother of the great Germanicus, and married to his own niece, the second Agrippina, was, as has been already stated, born at Lyon, at the very moment when his father, Drusus, was celebrating there the erection of an altar to Augustus. During his whole reign he showed to the city of his birth the most lively goodwill, and the constant aim as well as principal result of his goodwill was to render the city of Lyon more and more Roman by effacing all Gallic characteristics and memories. She was endowed with Roman rites, monuments, and names, the most important or the most ostentatious. She became the colony supereminently, the great municipal town of the Gauls, the Claudian town, but she lost what had remained of her old municipal government, that is, of her administration and commercial independence. Nor was she the only one in Gaul to experience the goodwill of Claudius. This emperor, with a mark of scorn from his infancy, whom his mother, Antonia, called a shadow of a man, an unfinished sketch of nature's drawing, and of whom his granduncle Augustus used to say, We shall be forever in doubt, without any certainty of knowing, whether he be 
or be not equal to public duties, Claudius, the most feeble indeed of the Caesars, in body, mind, and character, was nevertheless he who had intermittent glimpses of the most elevated ideas and the most righteous sentiments, and who strove the most sincerely to make them take the form of deeds. He undertook to assure to all free men of long-haired Gaul the same Roman privileges that were enjoyed by the inhabitants of Lyon, and amongst others that of entering the Senate of Rome and holding the great public offices. He made a formal proposal to that effect to the Senate, and succeeded, not without difficulty, in getting it adopted. The speech that he delivered on this occasion has been to a great extent preserved to us, not only in the summary given by Tacitus, but also in an inscription on a bronze tablet, which split into many fragments at the time of the destruction of the building in which it was placed. The two principal fragments were discovered at Lyon in 1528, and they are now deposited in the museum of that city. They fully confirm the most equitable, and it may be readily allowed, the most liberal act of policy that emanated from the earlier Roman emperors. Claudius had taken it into his head, says Seneca, to see all Greeks, Gauls, Spaniards, and Britons clad in the toga. But at the same time he took great care to spread everywhere the Latin tongue, and to make it take the place of the different national idioms. A Roman citizen, originally of Asia Minor, and sent on a deputation to Rome by his compatriots, could not answer in Latin the emperor's questions. Claudius took away his privileges, saying, He is no Roman citizen who is ignorant of the language of Rome. Claudius, however, was neither liberal nor humane towards a notable portion of the Gallic populations, to wit, the Druids. During his stay in Gaul he prescribed them and persecuted them without intermission, forbidding under pain of death their form of worship and every exterior sign of their ceremonies. He drove them away and pursued them even into Great Britain, whither he conducted, A.D. 43, a military expedition, almost the only one of his reign, save the continued struggle of his lieutenants on the Rhine against the Germans. It was evidently amongst the corporation of Druids and under the influence of religious creeds and traditions that there was still pursued and harbored some of the old Gallic spirit, some passion for national independence, and some hatred of the Roman yoke. In proportion as Claudius had been popular in Gaul, did his adopted son and successor, Nero, quickly become hated. There is nothing to show that he even went thither, either on the business of government or to obtain the momentary access of favor always excited in the mob by the presence and prestige of power. It was towards Greece and the East that a tendency was shown in the tastes and trips of Nero, imperial poet, musician, and actor, El Verus, one of the military commandants in Belgica, had conceived of a project of a canal to unite the Moselle to the Saone, and so the Mediterranean to the ocean, but intrigues in the province and the palace prevented its execution, and in the place of public works useful to Gaul, Nero caused a new census to be made of the population, whom he required to squeeze to pay for his extravagance. It was in his reign, as is well known, that a fierce fire consumed a great part of Rome and her monuments. The majority of historians accuse Nero of having himself been the cause of it, but at any rate he looked on with cynical indifference, as if amused at so grand a spectacle, and taking pleasure in comparing it to the burning of Troy. He did more. He profited by it so far as to have built for himself, free of expense, that magnificent palace called the Palace of Gold, of which he said, when he saw it completed, At last I am going to be housed as a man should be. Five years before the burning of Rome, Lyon had been a prey to a similar scourge, and Seneca wrote to his friend Lucilius, Lugdunum, which was one of the show-places of Gaul, 
is sought for in vain to-day. A single night sufficed for the disappearance of a vast city. It perished in less time than I take to tell the tale. Nero gave upwards of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars towards the reconstruction of Lyon, a gift that gained him the city's gratitude, which was manifested, it is said, when his fall became imminent. It was, however, J. Vindex, a Gaul of Vienne, governor of the Leonese province, who was the instigator of the insurrection which was fatal to Nero, and which put Galba in his place. When Nero was dead there was no other Caesar, no naturally indicated successor to the empire. The influence of the name of Caesar had spent itself in crimes, madnesses, and incapacity of his descendants. Then began a general search for emperors, and the ambition to be created spread abroad amongst the men of note in the Roman world. During the eighteen months that followed the death of Nero, three pretenders, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, ran this formidable risk. Galba was a worthy old Roman senator, who frankly said, if the vast body of the empire could be kept standing in equilibrium without a head, I were worthy of the chief place in the state. Otho and Vitellius were two epicures, both indolent and debauched, the former after an elegant, and the latter after a beastly fashion. Galba was raised to the purple by the Leonese and Narbonese provinces, Vitellius by the legions cantoned in the Belgic provinces. To such an extent did Gaul already influence the destinies of Rome. All three met disgrace and death within the space of eighteen months, and the search for an emperor took a turn towards the east, where the command was held by Vespasian, Titus Flavius Vespasianus, of Reti in the Duchy of Spoleto, a general sprung from a humble Italian family, who had won great military distinction, and who, having been proclaimed first at Alexandria, in Judea, and at Antioch, did not arrive until many months afterwards at Rome where he commenced the twenty-six years' reign of the Flavian family. End of chapter 5, part 1